If you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, I believe that's somewhere around 918, 919, if you're using the Pew Bible. Here's the thing about that, is that the kingdom of God is both expansive and it's really earthy. As expansive, it's cosmic in scale, reaching back to the first promise given of a future Messiah to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Reaching back further even than that to before the foundations of the world. It's the promise he gave to Abraham that through his line, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's the repeated promise of a king who would come. And then then Jesus did come, and he preached the kingdom of God, and he died on the cross in our place, made atonement for our sin. He was buried, and then the Bible says he, he was raised, and then he spent 40 days preaching the kingdom of God. That's what it says in Acts 1. And then ascended to the right hand of the Father to reign as king over the world and the church. Then in Acts, followers, Jesus' followers go in the power of the Spirit, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And as Acts closes, we see Paul in prison, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and the gospel continues to speed on, multiplying and bearing fruit as it still does in our day. If we fast forward, the, one day the Great Commission will be a great multitude that we see in Revelation 7, when God's inaugurated kingdom becomes the inactuality kingdom there. Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus is... Uh, presently doing the work, growing his kingdom toward that end. So the kingdom is expansive, it's cosmic, it's large, but it's also earthy. It's practical. The expansive intersects our lives in real, down-to-earth ways. It's micro, and it hits where the rubber meets the road. As the great theologian of the church, Jay Sun, said on DJ Official's album, Brother Dan, I don't think you have this one, Um, he said, my weakness cannot be denied, I know that my theology is nothing if not applied. I know the doctrine's atonement to eschatology, but am I in love with you or in love with theology? Theology, truth, must be applied. Great truth must move from our heads to transform our hearts and then work itself out in our hands and change how we act. And our text today turns to that kind of nitty-gritty, down-to-earth realities where Christ's reign in our hearts changes the very rubber-meets-the-road ways of how we act. Let me say, as we come to this text today, I don't expect that we're going to learn a whole lot. But preaching isn't ultimately about education, okay? It's ultimately about exhortation. 
It's not just about informing the head so that we get it. It's, it's about informing the head, yes, so that we get it in our heart and then it works its way out in our hands. It's about hearing his word as his will for our lives and asking his spirit to search us for any ways that we fall short of that. So here's what I mean. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for 50 years. I don't expect that I need to educate you that Christians should tell the truth and not tell lies. And going further, some of you still aren't walking with the Lord, but still, I don't think I need to educate you that Christians shouldn't steal, but should do honest work and be generous. You already know that. Even if you don't know Jesus, you know that that's how Christians are supposed to act. So while we know the truths of this text before us this morning, we need to be reminded of the simple but difficult. We need to hear the ways that the gospel is supposed to make us new, and then we need to take real inventory of our lives and see if there be in us any unclean way. So that the Spirit might convict us of anything in our life that doesn't reflect that big, expansive, eternal, glorious kingdom. Ephesians chapter 4, start in verse 20. It says, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sin go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may, may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would convict us of any areas of our life that uh, are more like the old man than they are like the new man. Uh, Father, I pray that you would reveal those to us so that us as your adopted children may better reflect your character, Father. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would do that in a way that you get more and more glory. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen. If I can uh, make this clear out of the gate, I can't like have you listen to this for 30 minutes the, the, the wrong way and then like drop a key truth on you in the end. 
if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, that is, if you've never like surrendered your life to Jesus, first of all, we're glad that you're here. Second, I do need to be crystal clear from the outset that you may be tempted to think that following Jesus is a matter of like starting to live Christianly. That like following Jesus is stop doing bad things and start doing good things. And that's not it, and I don't want you to think that for 30 minutes before I give you the gospel in the end. Following Jesus is first a matter of recognizing that you are not good enough and that you can't change on your own and you need Jesus to change you by his grace. The call to Christ is not the call for dead men to try to live in new ways. The call to Christ is for dead men to come to Christ as dead men and let Christ give life to dead men. And then out of that new life, then Christ can work in you so that the Christian can live in new ways. So today we're picking up this letter halfway through. Chapters 1 through 3 unpacked the gospel roots that the fruit of chapters 4 through 6 flow out of. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need that work in your life before you get after the work that we're talking about in this text today. So here's your permission if you'd like. You can zone out and not listen to me. You can flip back in that Bible in the pew in front of you and read through Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, and that's the work that you need in your life. Most of all, do not mistake the Christian good news as obey so that you can be accepted by God. The Christian good news is we can be accepted by God because Christ obeyed, because he died in our place on the cross, and by faith and repentance, he can make us new, so then out of that, we can obey. And church, for those of us who have been made new, let us be reminded that this rapid-fire list of commands that we see in our text today flows out of our identity in Christ. We see it over and over again, even in this text. Paul delivers here 13 imperatives, 13 commands, but the overarching theme is that the Christian must exchange their old life for the new. As Matt said last week, new life means a new way of living. Our passage today begins, therefore, and that points back to verse 17 through 24. The Christian must continually put off the old and put on the new. In this passage, Paul is repeatedly telling us the negative vice to put off and then telling us the new positive virtue to put on. It's the leaving the old life behind and walking out in grace. One other overarching note before we get to our rapid-fire list of commands. The, the, beyond this text, Paul will continue to share ways that the old become new. He does it again next week. Today he has in view putting off those sins which would tear apart the community within the church. You can look with me and see how this thread of community, this emphasis on the church comes up over and over in this text. In verse 25, he says, for we are members one of another. In 28, the Christians should work honestly so that they can be generous to others in the church. In 29, Paul says we need words that build up, which clearly calls back to that section earlier in chapter 4 of building up the body of Christ. 
In 32, he uses the one another language, which in the letters is almost exclusively used of the Christian and the fellow, fellow believers. And then in 5.1, we are reminded that we are together God's beloved children. So what Paul has in view here is the believing community, that the believing community, the church, would put away that which would tear apart the inherent unity that we have in Christ, and the church should treat each other in ways that show that we don't belong to the old way, rather we have been made new. So yet again, listen, yet again in Ephesians, we see the importance of the church. Faith in Christ is not only personal, it is always, always, always reflected corporately. Now, our our list. Paul gives six areas of exhortation and then summarizes them in one all-encompassing summary statement in the end. Number one, put away lies and put on truth. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. If you have the NIV, it misses the point a little bit by translating the first part as a command. He says, it says, you must put off falsehood, as if it's just a command. But Paul is saying more than that here. He's appealing to the gospel reality that Christians are those who have put it away already. They've put the old way away, and they now walk out in the truth. So he says, having put away falsehood. You've already done this, now walk out in the truth. Paul is here quoting from Zechariah 8:16, which if you have the NASB or the New King James, you can see that because it like quotes it. It just shows you that right there. Uh, if you want to exceed the expansive kingdom of God, meet the earthy, here you go, okay? Zechariah 8, Zechariah prophesies to the remnant that's coming back from exile about a coming new day when the people of God will again be great. Coming back from the discipline of exile, Zechariah promises that God's purposes have not been thwarted, but that they march on, and what he says will happen, happens and that new community, when, when, what, when that new community comes back and God does a new work in the new covenant community, he says in Zechariah that that new community will be marked by speaking the truth to one another. And so back in Zechariah, he's already appealing to what's going to happen in the church. Paul here points to that promise and then exhorts the church now to walk out in it. Church, as people who have been set free from the old ways, we must be a people that have put away lying lips and put on speaking the truth to one another. We have to be honest even with ourselves for a moment. Paul writes this for a reason. And the reason is that this is something that we must continually guard against. Like, I think we would be tempted to be like, I know not to lie. I know that I'm supposed to speak the truth. But there is a reason that Paul has to remind us that there is a reason that the Holy Spirit gives us this in the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures. 
It's because it's something that we have to continually guard against. What are the ways that you are still tempted toward dishonesty, downplaying, and deceiving instead of telling the truth? Note how Paul roots this command, for we are members one of another. It's a brief reminder of all that he's already said about corporate life together in the church. We're members together in the body of Christ. We can't have one part of the body lying to another part of the body because we're part of the same body. We've left all of that behind. Because lies hurt, right? You've been lied to. You know how that hurts? Big lies hurt. Little lies hurt. Lies erode trust. And how can you have community without trust? How can we share together if we can't be honest with one another? So I don't know what lies you are tempted to, to tell. Will we see you at base group tonight? Yeah, I'm going to try to be there. Hey, how are things going? Everything's going well. There's a place, don't hear me, don't mishear me, there's a place for pleasantries. We can't share everything with everyone, but inside your circle where that question is more than a greeting, you have to answer with more than just pleasantries. We all need to know that no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, there is still some part of us tempted to lie, to save face, lie to evade, lie for whatever reason. And church, Christ's body, must not be, Christ's body must be marked by speaking the truth. Jesus says our yes needs to mean yes. You owe honesty to your brothers and sisters because in Christ you are members one of another. Number two, put away sin when you are angry. It says be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, Paul quotes the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 4 that we opened up the service with, Psalm 4.4. Note that Paul's not here forbidding all anger. There are things that should make us angry. There's things that should make the godly angry. True injustice, brokenness, when his holiness is profaned. Of course, we see Jesus angered and yet always without sin. Again, here, as with the last, we have to be careful and own that we are tempted to this problem. So often we give ourselves a, a pass writing off our, our anger as righteous. F.F. Bruce says, there's no doubt a proper place for righteous indignation, but there's a subtle temptation to regard my anger as righteous indignation and other people's anger as sheer bad temper. Moreover, we have to recognize that most often, even our righteous anger is a mixed bag tainted with the unrighteous. I'll just give you an example. I've heard, like, maybe I read it on the internet or something, that sometimes kids will like disobey their parents in a way that makes their parents angry. 
I heard that happens. Uh, and of course, there's a righteous part of that anger in the parent, right? Like children should honor and obey their parents. But often, though, there's also like an unrighteous part of that anger. On top of the righteous, the anger be- can become inordinate. I don't want to have to stop what I'm doing to go deal with this. I don't like that I'm losing the control of my house. I don't like that this is offending my pride as a parent and what my kids are supposed to act. So in that imaginary moment, I can either bridle my anger, live in the self-control of the Holy Spirit, or I can let my anger cause me to sin. Paul is saying, even in your anger, you must not sin. And you know what he's talking about. You know how anger can tempt us to lose control, to feel justified or unaccountable in our actions. Like, well, I was mad, as if that's just like, I'm off the hook, I was mad. Paul says, you're not off the hook. James says, everyone should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because the anger of man does not bring, produce the righteousness of God. Going on, Paul says we should be careful not to let anger fester because that opens the door for the enemy to go to work. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And he doesn't mean literally that everything you are angry about must be dealt with before you go to sleep. But he does mean that you should keep very short accounts and you should deal with festering anger as soon as possible. The context of Psalm 4 shows us that there's a peace and a hope that God can give you even before there's a resolution to the problem. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Then down in 4.8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is before the writer there gets a resolution to his problems. So there are times to calm down before talking it out, but we must be careful not to avoid to the point where anger festers. As we, as we put off, put off, and then in our head we keep having that dialogue, like I know what I'm going to say. We just know exactly how it's going to go. We know how the other person's going to respond. And then we get angrier and angrier. Paul says that this kind of festering anger gives the devil an opportunity. And we know this, and this is why it's such a key part. Uh, it's a, such a key part of why handling conflict, conflict biblically is so important. When we allow anger to fester, the enemy gets the opportunity to isolate us and divide us from one another. You've seen this. You've been around the church at all. You've seen this happen in the life of the church. But hear me, because I really do believe it's this serious. If you love the glory of God, if you love the unity of the body, if you love the gospel going forth in the world from us, then you have to be committed to having hard conversations 
in order that the body not be divided, and in order that the church unity be protected, in order that the church can stay focused on the mission. God's glory, the expansive and the earthy meet here. Within the church, hear me, within the church, there's a time to just forbear and forgive. Like we can forbear and ignore and those kinds of sins that we can just forgive and move on from. We don't have to call out every wrong action. But we can't just forbear and forgive if the anger is going to fester within us. If it's not something that you can move on from, then you need to have the hard conversation. You need to have that conversation that says, hey, I didn't think this was right. Can we talk about this for for a minute? And by doing so, we can head off so much conflict and preserve the unity of the body. Last thing I would point out to you, this assumes close relationships within the church. This is one of those places where these kinds of New Testament exhortations assume that you are going to have close relationships with one another because it only makes sense if you have that kind of New Testament close relationship with the church. Paul sees the church as a web of real interconnected relationships that sometimes will make each other angry. Sometimes, sometimes we don't have to worry about that because we aren't connected, connected in the body. And so the exhortation, don't be angry with another member, doesn't make any sense to us because you're like, how could I be angry? I only see them for like 10 brief minutes while I'm walking in and out of the church. It, that kind of connection might help you avoid conflict, but it doesn't help you grow in Jesus. So I would just point out to you what this text assumes. It assumes close relationships. Number three, put away stealing and put on generosity. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Stealing in any form has no place in the life of the Christian. The Christian should seek only honest gain. Stealing is the old way that we must put away. And while we put on honest labor and generosity. And note here that Paul gets at the the heart. The Christian must not have a greedy heart wanting what's not theirs. But rather the Christian must have a generous heart that wants to give away what is theirs for the good of others. God has been extravagantly generous to us. We must, in turn, be an equally generous people. I don't know. I don't know what ways you are tempted to steal, where you're tempted toward dishonest gain. But it's real. It's probably like not as blatant as like you being tempted to like go pull off a heist or like do some shoplifting, but it is real. I was in the business world for a long time. So I know the temptation to cheat a time clock and justify it. I know the temptation to invoice for work that wasn't done. I know the temptation to pass the buck instead of take responsibility. But God's people 
have left the course of this world with its greed. We've left that behind, and we've turned to the kingdom of God. The expansive meets the earthy even while you decide what you're going to say in that email that you're sending. We're not to be greedy, but we're supposed to be generous, sharing with those in the church that have needs. And again, you know the thing about needs? It assumes close relationships within the body. It assumes that you have a close enough relationship within the church that people know your needs. And it assumes that people voice a need when they have it. And then the generous body of Christ can go to work meeting that need. So again, this text, the exhortations, assume close relationship. Number four, put away destructive words and put on words that build up. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Our speech is to be constructive, not destructive. It's to build up and not to tear down. Note how the language of this verse calls back to that early part of the chapter. Remember in 4, 11, and 12, where leaders equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And 16, when every part is working properly, the body builds itself up in love. Now here, only such as is good for building up. He's calling back to the early part of the chapter. All the uh, way through youth group, I heard this. I think, I think that like I came to Jesus, and maybe this was just me, and maybe, maybe they were probably right. But uh, I think they came to Jesus, and they were like, okay, he under- understands the gospel. Let's make sure he understands Ephesians 4.29. So like, let's see if we can clean up his mouth or something like that. I think that's how they uh, treated it. But all the way through youth group, I heard this as one of those memory verses that would be highlighted to say, like, don't say cuss words. And maybe bad language can be view, in view in corrupting talk here, but listen, if we make this verse mean only like bad words, don't say this list of bad words, we water it down quite a bit and miss the whole point. Paul isn't just dealing with that kind of bad language. He's dealing with speech that tears down, and you can have utterly destructive speech that tears down without uttering a cuss word. Give you one example. You'll never change. Hurtful, graceless, not redemptive, anti-gospel. The word here used for corrupting is used elsewhere for diseased, rotten, bad. Like in the gospels where the diseased tree brings forth diseased fruit. The bad tree gives forth bad fruit. Your words can mend, they can heal, they can minister grace to the hearer, or they can start decay. And you know the children's nursery rhymes, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's garbage. I've uh, shared my story publicly 
of a dark time in my early 20s. Burnout, depression, and then a physical fight that disqualified me from ministry for a while. My wife knows this, and a few others know this, but do you know that the straw that broke the camel's back in that, the moment where I said, man, forget this, I'm just going to take this plane on a nosedive, it came after scathing, non-redemptive words from a fellow believer. Don't mishear me. That person isn't responsible for all of my like sinful responses. I'm responsible for that. I should have been seeking to please God and not them. I was already unhealthy in so many ways. I was blowing past all kinds of warning signs. But listen, in the body of Christ, we have the opportunity to minister grace with our words. Or we can cut down, pile on, and kick someone while they're down. On the other time, on the other hand, we know that sometimes a hard word can be a helpful word. Sometimes what is good for building up is a tough word delivered as graciously as possible, as fits the occasion, Paul says, and as Proverbs reminds us, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So this verse here is not forbidding hard words, it's forbidding unhelpful words. Number five, put away anything that grieves the Holy Spirit. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In context, this may refer especially to the speech from the prior sentence, but it also seems to be broadened out, like put away anything that grieves the Holy Spirit. You can grieve, grieve, you can grieve the Holy Spirit of God that indwells you. Grieve means to sadden, to make sorrowful, to distress. So like you remember the rich young ruler, right? He comes to Jesus and he like, asks Jesus what he must do to, to keep the law. And Jesus discerns his heart and he tells him, go sell everything, give it to the poor and come follow me. And, and you know what it says? It says, then he went away sorrowful. Same word here used for grief. Or in 1 Thessalonians 4, you, you, you know this verse. He says, we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. He's talking about being sad. We know what grieve means there. Grieve means grieve. It's the same word used here. You can grieve the Holy Spirit of God that indwells you. You can sadden, distress, make sorrowful. We don't want to live in a way that saddens the Spirit of God that has graciously sealed you. As I say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let's call back to early part of 1, 13 and 14. So it means we shouldn't tolerate in our life any kind of unloving attitudes or actions that are against the work that the Spirit's seeking to accomplish in us. 
Okay, sometimes, sometimes we treat sin in our life like I treat getting my tag renewed. No time now, but I'll get to it. Okay, getting my tag renewed on my truck, I know you were in Jackson County and y'all are like, you don't understand this part, but like getting my tag on, uh, renewed on my truck is a process. I have to diagnose the engine light, okay, so that I can pass emissions. This is the part that y'all don't have, okay. I, so I have to diagnose the engine light, fix the problem, pass emissions, and then go get the tag. Then get ready to do it again next year. So uh, I think this is just a reminder that I need to leave Gwinnett, move up here to Jackson County, and there we go. But... Listen, I put this off. Last year, I put this off. It, my wife had enough of, like, I'll get to it. And so she took my truck when I was out of town at the SBC in June. She was like, I'm getting this done. No, no more, I'll, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. So in June, she took my truck and got my tag. My birthday's in September. <laughs> that means in August, I was like, I'll get to it. I'll get to it in, like, in August. I was like, I know it's coming up. I'll get to it. In September, I was like, I'll get to it. October, November, December, so on. I was like, I'll get to it. Putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. It's the same way. Same way that too often we treat sin in our life that grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit. must not procrastinate putting off any sin in our life that grieves the Spirit of God. And again, Paul roots this in the gospel. This is the Spirit who has marked you for the day of redemption. How are we going to take the grace of the Spirit's work in our lives and respond in a way that grieves him? Answer, the Christian must not. The unholy grieves the Holy Spirit, and we must seek to be serious dealing with anything in our lives that saddens the Spirit. Number six, put away bitterness and put on kindness and forgiveness. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I think we can see in this list, a general progression from the inward to the outward. Bitterness leads to wrath and anger, which then leads to clamor and slander and malice. Wrath and anger here could be synonymous just for emphasis, or if there is a difference, then wrath is something like outbursts, and anger is something like that kind of seething. Clamor refers to what we might call bickering. Again, I think we Know this, if we have children, sometimes there's clamor in, in our house. But uh, the, it's that back and forth that leaves others like, why can't we just get along? That's clamor. Slander, any, listen, slander is any speech that tears down someone else's character, whether it's true or untrue. Biblically, slander is tearing someone else's character down, even if it's true. It doesn't have to be untrue to be slander. And then Paul ends with the all-encompassing, along with all malice. Jesus tells us that these are the kinds of things that flow from an unhealthy heart. Matthew 15, Mark 7. 
Christ's body must continually be putting these away. And again, this can sound so basic and so elementary, but if you've been a part of a church family for any time at all, I think you've probably seen bitterness turn into anger, turn into clamor and slander and malicious deeds. If we're not careful, it can, bitterness can grow and fester. We can start doing things motivated from that bitterness. I'm not going to be around that guy in base group. I'm not coming back to this study. I'm not serving on that ministry team. And so it's vitally important that we commit ourselves to always be rooting out bitterness. If someone has sinned against us in a way that we can't just forbear and forgive, then we need to have the conversation and, and clear the air. Because again, the glory of God, the unity of the church, pursuing the mission, all of that is at stake in bitterness and in these interpersonal relationships. Instead, Christian relationships should be marked by kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. And look, it's rooted in the gospel. As God in Christ forgave you. Last, in summary, Paul says, imitate the Father, imitate the Son, walk in love. Remembering that the chapter divisions are not part of the original text, 5, 1 through 2 seems to summarize this section before he moves on in 5, 3 to another topic. So summarizing all that he's saying here, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we see the commands, be imitators of God, walk in love, but then we see them rooted in the gospel, be imitators of God as beloved children. It calls to mind all of the adoption language of the whole book of Ephesians. Why are we going to imitate God? Because we're his adopted children. Why are we going to put away all of these things? Because he's adopted us out of the old way of living, and he's adopted us into his family. And his family must be marked by the Father's character. Therefore, we learn from the Father, and we treat others as he has so graciously treated us. Then walk in love. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's a command rooted in the gospel, repeatedly rooted in the gospel. We see it done over again next week where those commands are rooted in the gospel. We walk in love because we have been so lavishly loved by Christ. He died in our place to rescue us from our sin. It's a reminder of the gospel. Everything that we do is always because of what Christ has done. Grace must continuously be the engine that's driving our pursuit of greater Christ-likeness. And as a people that have been adopted, okay, think back with Ephesians, 
We're like 13, 14 weeks in now. As a people that have been adopted by the Father as full heirs, we have the down payment of that inheritance in the Holy Spirit. And we await a future inheritance when we acquire full possession of it. We must never receive his grace in vain. Rather, we're to walk out in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We must live lives that rightly respond to that grace by being zealous to put away any, any, and every vestige of the old ways while we put on the glorious new life in Christ. Because ultimately we want to preach with our lives with our very lives, as people look at us, what we preach with our lips. We want to preach a message with our lives that says, Jesus changes dead men. Like, Jesus makes people new. The cross, faith in Jesus, it really does change people. It takes you from your old ways, and it makes you new. We want our lives to proclaim that, and we want our lips to proclaim that. So, to that end, let's ask the Spirit to reveal in us any further ways that we can root out the old man in our life and that we might proclaim that more and more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you show us very practically ways that the gospel applies in our life. Father, help us to guard us from two errors this morning as we walk out from here. God, guard us from pursuing this in our own strength. Help us to pursue this in your strength, Father. But Father, also guard us from abusing your grace in a way that thinks that our life doesn't have to change. Lord, make us more and more like you. Make us more and more like you as a church. And Lord, work in each of our individual lives to make us more and more like you. Father, I pray that if there be ongoing conflict, if there be cross words that have been shared, if there be any kind of bitterness in our church family, Lord, I pray that you would convict those involved, that we would seek reconciliation. And Father, I do pray that uh, you would use us more and more for your glory. Uh, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.